for Gene Shepard, humorist, after-dinner speaker, and recipient of the Mark Twain Award for chance the other night I was uh, I was sitting in this motel see anybody who travels a lot recognizes the fact that one of the great boons to sanity for the solitary long-distance runner the traveler the eternal traveler over the world of life one of the uh, aspects of modern life modern existence uh, that uh, is rarely touched upon is is the so-called traveler's malaise uh, you know what is a traveler's malaise well a traveler's malaise is is because uh, many things it could be Montezuma's revenge which is something else that's purely physical but the malaise of the traveler is is largely mental and to anybody who travels a great deal all around the uh, country now this is in, in any place in the world really but let's take our country for just a specific example. Like the other night, I'm in this motel in Troy, New York. And that's, you know, upstate New York. I arrive and I'm in this, this motel scene. It's the, it's the Holiday Inn. And uh, a solitary traveler that travels through the Holiday Inns and the Howard Johnsons of the world uh, begins to have a feeling for the Howard It becomes your home. The Holiday Inn room becomes more familiar than your own place. And you think what I'm saying there. I'm saying that the, that the condition of being in transit becomes more normal to you than the condition of being in quietus or in stasis. And so it was about one o'clock in the morning, say, and the show is now over. And I drift through the lobby of the Holiday Inn, say, I'm just drifting around to the lobby, and it's silent, just a few shoe salesmen finishing their business at the desk there, one guy's mailing a report back to the home office with his, his padded expense account, and I walk down the long, empty corridors, past all the rooms with numbers on the doors, 121, 129... 46. And then I take the elevator up three flights. Now I'm walking along another identical corridor. 405, 419, 421. Ah, yes, it's home. 421.
do not measure my life by coffee spoons. I'm sorry, T.S. I do not measure my life by coffee spoons. I measure it by keys to motel rooms. Green plastic keys with their mystic Kabbalistic numbers. Four, two, one. that, huh? <laughs> Reset that, Ed. Well, anyway, I go into this motel room, and I look around, and it's the same. You see, the thing about that, that gives you the sense of permanence in an impermanent situation is the uniformity of the room. In other words, the room that I was in was exactly like the Holiday Inn room that I had occupied in... Uh, Cheyenne, Wyoming. Exactly the same as the Holiday Inn room that I had had in El Paso, Texas. And just like the Holiday Inn in New Haven, Connecticut. Precisely as the Holiday Inn in Ontario and in Montreal. The Holiday Inn rooms of time. And above the bed was the same painting. The same ship sailing over the same endless banal sea held to the wall with two heavy self-locking screws so that the passing traveler would not take his bit of art with him the same glasses sealed with a protective sanitized plasticine coated seal coffee machine with the powdered coffee, those curious little wooden-flavored sticks that add so much to the flavor of the coffee, those little cups, those plastic cups, and the machine that in one room out of five doesn't work when you fill it up with water and you put it on the thing, the light does not light the way it's supposed to light, but you shrug your shoulders and plot on because you're home, and you'll forgive anything of home when it's all said and done. Home is where the heart is. Home is where the motel key resides. You know, uh, there hasn't been enough, and I'm, I'm going to suggest, I'm going to make a prediction here. You ready for prediction time, Ed? that by the year 2000, which is not that far away, the year 2000 is not far away at all, by the year 2000, I predict that a whole literature will arise based on motel living. Now think about it for a minute. Now wait, because I I think our country is becoming more and more and more as ye, almost well, it's almost logarithmic the, the development. It's becoming more mobile, more mobile. You prefer the word every year, not in a straight line, but in a fantastic explosion. 
And I think by the year 2000, it will be the rare person who will actually own a permanent home where they live, permanently. <laughs> it's hard to believe. Well, I, I find more and more people. Well, you know what I base it on? I'll tell you what I base it on. I base it on the universal itch and discontent, uh, which is part of the American scene. And also, there's another thing, too, uh, that's growing in America, and that is a universal desire to escape permanent responsibilities. Well, what is more of a permanent responsibility than a house, a home? That's a symbol of responsibility. Do you agree with that? It's, it's the symbol of responsibility, and it's an actual financial and physical responsibility. If you own a house, the minute you go away, just leave it for a month. Uh, automatically, the, the grass keeps growing, the crabgrass keeps growing, the termites keep eating it, uh, they have four guys wearing uh, bandanas around their neck break in. Uh, <laughs> you see what I'm saying? See, in other words, the, 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 the idea of owning a, a permanent home is almost a thing which is beginning to disappear from the American scene. That a lot of people have already made, they've made a half transition. They own a house, but they also own a camper which they spend a great deal of time in. And as they get older, they tend to spend more time in a camper and less time in a house. Till eventually, all of a sudden, they say, what the hell we got this house for? You know, we go back to it to change the tires once in a while in a camper. We keep the tires in the garage. <laughs> I know people just like that. Yeah, that's right. So, so ultimately, the, 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 um, the concept of people on the road, living on the road, will be almost a permanent way of life. And I suspect that ultimately there will be two populations, really. There will be the, the, uh, the, the nesters and the movers. I've felt this for a long time, that by the year 2000, the, 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 the whole concept of the mover in our society, the guy who just doesn't want to stay in one place, who gets tired of the same place, he doesn't look at the, want to see the same walls around him all the time. He likes the excitement of always tasting the, the curious... Uh, uh, almost sensual, uh, sensual experience of the new. Uh, he he is he's going to be he's growing so rapidly that he's going to be ultimately a a large section, almost possibly even a uh, a majority of the population. You know, I'm going to, and I even see by the year 2000, political parties that will be based on one or the other. That one candidate will represent the moving people. And the other candidate will represent those who own houses and are crabgrass-oriented. And they're, they're, they're definitely two different kinds of, of people. They really are. And, and, and there have to be new voting laws. They will. This will get political, too, of course. Uh, because, you know, in most states, you have to have at least, to, to vote in presidential elections, you have to have some kind of six-month, in many states, residence laws, some of them even a year. Well, this will be called uh, discrimination by some guy. What if some guy lives in 40 states in a year? I mean, really lives. He doesn't live in any one state. He, he lives in 40 states in a year. He doesn't want to, and he doesn't have any permanent home residence. No way. Well, is he going to be disenfranchised? Are you going to say to him he can't vote merely because he likes to be on the road? In fact, in many ways, he can be even the most intelligent voter. 
because he knows more about more parts of the country than the average person. He knows he knows more problems. <laughs> he really does. And so if he lives a month in uh, in Arizona, and then he lives a month in uh, in uh, Maine, then he lives a month in uh, Wyoming, then he lives a month in in uh, you know some place like California, and then he spends a couple of weeks uh, uh, hanging around Nebraska. This guy really knows something about life, you know. <laughs> and, and and you know that that I found I'm finding it in my life increasingly difficult to even do things like vote because I'm always traveling around. I'm I'm continually uh, out of the country or someplace at the time when they're having these big things like uh, registering and stuff like that. So what are they going to do when that becomes a major part of the population? And I can see it happening. Do you agree with that, Ed? Now now. We're so house-oriented in our country, or have been up to this point, that we find it difficult to comprehend a population that's per almost perennially on the move. And yet, uh, I think that's, that's going to be the ultimate result of, uh, of let's say, final automa automation of industry. There's no reason for a guy to, to, uh, to live in a certain, uh, certain area. Because, you know, years ago, people would live in certain areas because their work was there and because they had a specialty. So, for example, if you were a, if you were a, uh, a puddler, you know what is it, a puddler? This is a steel worker, a certain type of steel worker. Well, you could only live in certain places like uh, uh, Pittsburgh or maybe Gary, a uh, place where they're making big steel. But all that stuff is going automated now. They have no puddlers. They don't have, they don't have many of these people any longer. And so uh, the whole concept of having a trade of the old style trade is beginning to disappear because the function of the trades are now often being taken over by uh, big plants. For example, you know that uh, this is surprising to a lot of people when they first find out that carpentry is disappearing. Now, why is carpentry disappearing? Well, because the way houses are constructed has changed. That there used to be guys with, you know, three or four guys would show up with saws and a, b a bunch of barrels of nails and a, a whole lot of two-by-fours, and they'd start building a house. You know, that was, they were carpenters. They built a house. But now houses are made in factories. Then I know large parts of the country where, where houses are completely ordered, uh, prefab. They, they, they order the house. The, horse, the house is delivered in a, in a freight car. They, they unload it someplace. They bring it in. They set it up, and that's the end of it. There's two or three guys that bolt them together, and that's the new specialist. But uh, the point I'm making, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to get dull about this, is that as I travel around the country, I find that the motel life is becoming more an accepted way of life. It used to be the exception a few years back, and also people tended to put it down. See, they used to say, "Oh, you know, living in a motel and so on." But actually, to a true traveler, a real traveler, the the the, the time has come now in our time when he looks upon the motel really as his basic home. You're thinking about that. <laughs> You're not, huh? <laughs> well, I'm sorry, Ed. <laughs> you can't imagine it? Well, I don't mind it, actually. I'll tell you, it's kind of nice. In fact, if you're a real traveler, you want to be, be unencumbered. That's one of the things about a traveler. That a real tra you see, there's a difference between a tourist and a traveler. I'm making a big difference there. A tourist is basically a guy who works a lawnmower most of the time at home, and he owns a couple of Instamatics, and uh, 
he takes his two weeks. Now, that's a tourist. He's on a tour. He's, he's a tourist. There's nothing wrong with that. That's the way he is. He's a tourist. But a traveler is much more of a permanent condition. And so a traveler is a traveler. And he gets to look in the eye of a traveler. Did you ever see, did you ever see uh, the music man? <laughs> there was a traveler, a traveling man. And uh, he, he, it was an actual play, you know, and, and that's not rarely touched upon. There's a play, a musical about a, a traveler. And he, he was a traveling salesman. And uh, in my case, you know, when I get into this motel room, I sat down there and I had this great moment, see, and I walked through the lobby. And there's always almost the same type of person that you see in these lobbies. These are guys that are per really perpetually on the road. You can always tell the difference, too. There's, there's two, actually there's three or four types that are in motels most of the time. But uh, there's two general types. There's the guys that really travel, really do. And then there's the uh, Mon Pa traveler. They call it Mon Pa. They've got the big Chevy station wagon out there piled high with junk. And, you know, there's always about five or six yelling kids, and usually a cocker spaniel tied up in the car outside and all that stuff. See, that's, that's the Mon Pa crowd. Now, they really aren't part of the world of the real traveler. The real traveler, you, you can see him. He's always sitting down at the end at the coffee, uh, you know, in the, in the coffee shop. He's sitting down there, and he's, he's very casually reading the local newspaper. Whatever the local newspaper is, the Bugle of, uh, you know, the Bugle, the Cheyenne, Rustler, or whatever it is, he's sitting there reading it. Say. And now, he doesn't do this because he's particularly interested in what's in that paper. But it's just part of the thing of traveling. He's just sitting there reading it, and he's, and he's reading with a dull eye various local issues that are going on. He's drinking a coffee. And you always see underneath this paper, he's usually got a copy, dog-eared and worn, of the New York Times or of some other city which is far removed from where you are right now. He may have the Chicago Trib. He may have the Detroit Free Press. He may have... He may have a, uh, the Philadelphia Inquirer, but you can tell it. It's it's definitely his. You know, this is the paper he's been reading. See, now he's bought this other one, and he's sitting there and he's having his coffee, and uh, he's absolutely at ease, completely at ease. He knows every item on the menu. He knows the menu of the Holiday Inn and the Howard Johnson as well as you know your own menu at home. You never open your refrigerator and are surprised to see what's in there. I mean, really. Because you you know it's you know <laughs> you may be mad about what's in there and you may be bugged but you're never really surprised and so so he isn't either he knows this thing see he's sitting there and uh, as he walks through the corridor you know there's a special feeling you walk along that corridor and and all the doors have the same look because they've been designed by the same people and it's all prefab so you get a sense of hominess now at this point to the tourist it is a sense of alien. He is in an alien atmosphere because his real atmosphere is, say, Clifton, New Jersey. He feels, you know, he f begins to feel warm when he comes over the, the GW and uh, he finds himself heading down Route 3. See, he, he can smell Secaucus and he knows he's home and he gets this feeling of, of, uh, of home. Now, on my side, I get the feeling of complete alien when I'm visiting somebody and I can see grass out there and I see lawnmowers in the garage and stuff. It's a completely alien world to me. But when I walk along that long corridor, 
I go sneaking down that long corridor, and it's it's the lights are all around. They're always the same kind of lights, kind of an invisible, off-key lighting. I walk along that corridor, door after door, one after the other, past me. That they're always that pastel terracotta color, with the with the faint brushed steel numbers. I get this warm feeling inside of me. This warm feeling of the of the weary traveler who has been an alien country who at long last is home. Home. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no, it, it 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 is home. And and I'm sitting in my in my motel. And you learn all kinds of little techniques. And I'll, I'll tell you little techniques you guys uh, would like to would like to know if you're the real traveler types. Uh, I'll give you a little tip here. First of all, one of the problems that you that you run into all the time in the motels, these are little irritating things. You get in your room, right? And you, you're, you're all set, see? And you, you lock the door and everything, you're all ready, and you start unpacking junks late at night, see? And you realize now, confound it, you say. I wish I had a, I wish I got a Coke. All right. Now, what's the problem right there? Uh, for one thing, you 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 got to go back out. Often you've already undressed, so you you wind up you you put a coat on or something, and you go scurrying out through the through the uh, through the corridors, and you go down to the end where they have the Coke machine. These have Coke, they have a Seven Up, Pepsi, a few other things down there. And uh, here you're you're presented right away with the problem of the ice bucket. You got to bring back ice. Now that they have this ice machine, this the whole bit. Now, I'm going to tell you, as an experienced travel, what you do, <laughs> you got it? When you come in, the first thing you do, real experienced-type travelers, first minute you check in, uh, because they always run out of Cokes, usually about 8.30, 9 o'clock at night. And uh, when you want a Coke at 1 o'clock in the morning, when you're, when you're watching the late, late movie, you really want it. And you go down there, and you put your quarter in there, nothing, but that little green light says, out. And that really bugs you. So... Little handy hint. First thing you do, this is before you unpack, you take a couple of quarters, and it's now early. See, it's only five o'clock. You've checked in. You go down and you get yourself a couple of cokes right away. You just put the machine now. They they've just loaded it up. See, get yourself a couple of cokes, maybe three of them. You bring them back, put them in your room. Right now, you go out. You do whatever it is you're going to do. See, and you hang around, you holler, and you yell at the girls in the pool room. Whatever it is you do in town. See, now you come back. It's now 1 o'clock in the morning. Now, you don't want to go into your room and get the ice bucket and then come back out again, go all the way down to the end again. The whole It gets to be a real hassle. So what I do is this. As I walk into the motel, I always manage to go in through the exit or the gate, the door, where the ice machine is. I have spotted this immediately. It's always on at the end. You go through, and you put, you just stop at the ice machine, and you put about a half dozen ice cubes right in the pocket of your coat. You don't need the uh, the uh, ice bucket. You just stick them in your pocket. Now, you'd say, what do you mean? Get my pocket wet? No. These ice cubes have been in there now for eight, nine, ten hours, many of them, and they're hard as rocks, and they will not melt for at least five minutes. So you just stick them in your, in your pocket like that. You put seven or eight of them. You fill your whole pocket full of ice cubes. Now, there's usually a few ma and pa tourist types around. Look at, look, look at you like you're a nut. See, but you don't care. Remember, you're a pro. 
that's that's a, they're strictly bush league. They're out there fooling around with the kids and they're filling bottles of milk and stuff like that. You know, you don't want to mess with that crowd. So you just you just stick these ice cubes in your pocket and you cool on down to your room. And the first thing you do then, you open the door, you run into the john, you get the ice bucket, which is usually placed on that little shelf in the john, that little plastic ice bucket, right? And you put your ice cubes, immediately take them out of your pocket before they can get wet. So you take them out, dump them in the ice cube bucket, then run water over it. So you just slosh the water around and all the little pieces of grubbles and, uh, and pipe tobacco and junk that have stuck to the ice cubes will immediately wash off. And there you are. You're set for tonight. At which point now, you see, now you, 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 you stick your cans of Coke instantly into the ice bucket now. Remember that. You put them in the ice bucket. Now, this is all very efficient. Now, you're, you're working like a true, a true pro. At which point, then, you remove your clothes, you put on your pajamas or whatever it is you're going to do, and the, by that time, the, the Coke is starting to get cold, right? You take the first can out. Now, you've got three cans, we'll say, in the ice bucket, and all the ice is around. You take the first can out, you pop it, you pour it into the glass, and you take two or three ice cubes and put it right in the glass with it. But remember, leave the other ice cubes in there to keep your other Cokes cold. And you stick what's left of the can that you've opened back in the bucket. Now you're here under control. You bring your bucket out. Now, if you're really a true experienced traveler, you will have also carried a small padded uh, bag. You can buy these little padded bags with a zipper on the top that contains your little, uh, your little uh, glass container of, uh, let's say, uh, Jack Daniels, right? Jack Daniels, possibly a little Plymouth gin, whatever it is you might like. See, maybe you lace your Coke a little bit. Now you're, you're ready. You're in charge. You settle back and you turn on the TV set. Well, now, this is the great boon of the world total and the complete traveler. Nothing is more homey, <laughs> and I might say uh, it gives you a sense of stability than the late, late movie, wherever you are. You turn that thing on, and out it comes, out of the darkness. You see, you see the, the furry, musty, the, the uh, vaguely out-of-focus face of Jimmy Cagney looking at you. And it's an ancient movie, and you, you're, you're, you're plugged into your, to your, your culture. You see, this is very important. Well, I had this great moment the other night in Troy. What came on? But one of the great classic movies of its type of all time. The crowd roars. Did you ever see this movie? If you ever if you ever see it listed in television listings, look at it. It's the great classic made about the Indianapolis race, the 500. And it has some of the great dialogue of all time because it's 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 a it's not only is it a good movie, but it's 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 extremely how can I put it? It's extremely realistic. There's one moment when Jimmy Cagney says to the to the young kid who wants to be a race driver. Cagney's this hard-bitten professional. He's, he's won the Indy a couple of times, and he's been there and back, and he's got, he's got this sad look in the eye who has seen many of his friends disappear over the wall in a cloud of flame. And he says to the kid, he says, you want to be a race driver, what for? The kid says, well, i got to drive. He says, a rotten, stinking business. He says, you know what they come for? They come to look for wrecks. Yes, they come to look for wrecks, and they want to see your blood all over that track. That's what they come for. The kid says, but, but, but I want to race. He said, let me tell you, kid, a lot of guys got good cars and are good drivers, and they don't win. 
Why? The kid says, why? He says, it's luck, that's why. Some got it, some ain't. And the only time that they ever notice them that ain't got it is when they're spread all over the track. And that crowd is roaring. That's what they come for. They want to see you spread all over the track. And he takes a great big suck out of that flask. And the kid says, I still want to race. He says, okay, kid, it's your business, but don't expect no help from me. And he strides out into the night. And I'm sitting there in the darkness of my room. In the motel, the Howard Johnson of all eternity. In Troy, Jimmy Cagney saying, don't expect no help from me, kid. Yeah, that's what the crowd is looking for. They come to see wrecks. They come to see your blood spread all over the track. Somehow, you can't imagine Jimmy Cagney checking into the Howard Johnson or to the Holiday Inn. Jimmy Cagney with the sad look in the eye, that angry jaw, that flashing moment of total ire and anger. You can't see him walking down the corridor looking for the ice machine with his ice bucket in his hand with a can of Fresca in the other hand. Oh, no. No, as you walk along those corridors, as you stride along, both of them, just both of them, that's right. I'll teach you some tricks in this business, Ed. As you walk along through those corridors of time, bring it up big, man, and you see that pastel-colored door that stands out there with your number on it. You look at the key, you look at the tag, and it says 421, and you know you're home. <laughs> I told you I'd teach you some tricks. That's right. Ice buckets today, who knows what tomorrow. And that concludes tonight's salute to Howard Cosell. We'll be back tomorrow at the same time. Fans? <laughs> been listening to Gene Shepard, humorist, author, and recipient of the Mark Twain Award for 1976.